Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am here in the Condé Nast Podcast Studios, which, as we've been discussing, are much in demand these days. Uh, I'm here with the long lost Mark Elwood. Welcome back. Hello. I always I feel like you always say that to me. I do, I'm because, always long because lost. I want you here every week and you're so rarely it's so rarely true. We also have Meredith Carey and Hi. Catherine the Grave. Hello. And Sebastian Modak. Hello. Sebastian Modak making his final appearance mm. on the Travelogue podcast. It is true. He is departing our company. And we are sad to see him. We're go. all looking very sad. You can't see us looking <laughs> sad, but we are looking sad. <laughs> Sad emoji. Maybe faces. I'll come back as a as a guest. Oh, undoubtedly, an expert. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly on something. Our topic today is not going to be that. It's going to be over tourism, which is a phrase that I feel like. And Cathro, you're Catherine. Cathro <laughs> Tull. Cathro Tull in your your next job, fronting a, a prog yeah. rock band. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think your intro is sort of getting at this, which I'm, um, you know, kind of like co-editing with Redmond, is getting at the fact that this is both something that is very recent in the sense of people's awareness of it, Mm -hmm. but that has actually been building up for a long time. Yeah. And so I thought one place that might be nice to start is for people who are uninitiated, which is where I always like to start (laughs) because I'm one of them. Can we talk about some of the places because some of these are very popular, big places that I think are on everyone's wish list or places they have been. Mm-hmm. We talk about some of the places around the world that have been struggling with this problem. But before we do that, I just want to say, I think, what would we define over tourism as? Because I think it's an umbrella word that it's easy to not quite grasp what it means. What do you think it means? What do you consider over tourism, Catherine? Sure. For this package, it's, it's a pretty simple definition, right? So too many visitors in one place putting a certain kind of pressure on in one way or another. So all of these places, you'll see if you're reading the package, they don't have to be cities. They don't have to be whole countries. They can be small world heritage sites. They can be national parks. Um, so it really varies, obviously, in terms of the type of pressure. But that's the simple definition. Too many would, people. Yep. I would Causing also say, some sort of tension, right? Sorry. <laughs> Just when I get these words out. I would also say that if you want like a real primer on this, we did a podcast episode last December that did the very, very basics of over-tourism. So this is kind of like the part two. This, this is, is 201. Yeah, 201 this is 201 because class. for this package, you asked about places that are sort of struggling with over-tourism. Right. And... For this one, we, we chose five destinations that we kind of thought were experiencing over-tourism in different ways, right? So we have Boracay, which is an island that was just closed. It's really popular, our reader's favorite island, and it'll be opening soon um, after six months of rehabilitation. We have Machu Picchu, which is a World Heritage Site. We have Venice, which Mark wrote about, but we have the other side of Venice's over-tourism story, um, which you don't hear a lot, and I'm sure Mark will talk about a little bit. We have the Azores, which a lot of people are calling the next Iceland, which sort of anticipated its over-tourism problem um, because it has a bunch of new flights and a bunch of new interests. And then the final fifth story was about Bhutan, which some people think maybe this is a country that has it figured out. Um, so those are our five key stories for this. Um, they all tell a different over-tourism story, which I think is a good place to start. I always think over-tourism, when you think of a destination and over-tourism, you think of one of those places that you ha- take a moment to think about whether you should go. Mm-hmm. It's that place that you go, oh, I've heard, or oh, am I supposed to, or oh. It's the places that you think 
you take a moment before you book that flight. And it's like when you were saying how kind of this is the 201 version of it is that, you know, the countries that you just mentioned, obviously it doesn't cover some of the more like obvious ones right. that have suffered from over like I think the classic, you know, you've called Azores, people have called it the next Iceland is because Iceland is kind of the classic case of that, of like the budget flights opening it up. And then now the number that always is in my head is that there are during high season in the summer there are more Americans in Iceland than Icelanders but in Iceland. But see, the thing is that what I love about these stories is when we talked to, I, I interviewed a tourism specialist from Iceland about this, and I talked to people from Barcelona. Meredith, you talked to Elizabeth Becker, who literally wrote the book about this. And the point is that everyone is saying is like over tourism is not a tourism problem. It's a result of a success in some mm -hmm. way, the success being, okay, this is a really big airport development that we have. And it's it's like these cities and these destinations are, are scrambling and being forced to figure out how to deal with this yeah, success in a way. And it's a web of politics, of consumerism, of capitalism. Right? Yeah, I th and I think that's a, both an interesting and an important point because it was, it was a year and a half or two years ago that everybody in the travel business was getting pitched by the Azores to promote travel there yeah, right. and to come and investigate it. And Seb, you went and visited there, you know, as a sort of response to, hey, we've got really great stuff going on here. Come check and check Seb's us out. Check Seb's videos. Seb's videos from the Azores <laughs> will make you want to go whether you're worried about over-tourism <laughs> or not. I hate the outdoors. And those videos make me want to go. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true for Iceland. Iceland has waged a decades-long campaign to get people to come to Iceland. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, this is too much of a good thing, right? And, and there's no question that tourism is a critical economy for many, many places around the world. So this is not trying to escape that necessarily. And I would also say that when I was talking to Elizabeth Becker, who, as Catherine said, wrote this book called Overbooked in 2013, so five years ago. Um, and when she was writing it, she says that like no one really knew like what she was researching. They were all like, oh, yeah, there are a lot of people here. But like mm -hmm. what you're searching for is not a real problem. But what she brought up, which I thought was so interesting, was you have these cities like Barcelona, like Reykjavik, who are trying to, quote unquote, battle this thing that's happening. But for the most part, the city your mayor can't decide how many flights are coming in or how many cruise ships are coming in. And they can do their best to deal with what they've got, but mm -hmm. it is an industry and people are always looking for more ways to make money. And that sometimes means bringing more people in necessarily than the place can handle. And it takes the federal government often, like in Bhutan, to make a statement and say, no, we're actually going to do something about this and regulate this in a way that is helpful for everyone. And it's, it's timing too, right? So it's like, like Iceland probably... I mean, they obviously were trying to promote tourism. They had these new airlines, all these things. I don't think they saw it coming in the way that it hit them. And I think, you know, if the piece I wrote for this package on the Azores, kind of the main point I was making was that the Azores was late to the game in terms of tourism. And a big part of that was because of protectionist measures, economic measures. But, you know, only one airline was allowed to fly there, things like that. And then they started opening it up, liberalizing it. But at the same time, they had just seen what had happened to Iceland and like the pressures and the tensions that that was causing in other places around the world. And so they were able to take preemptive measures. But don't you think, Seb, I was going to say that I think the challenge here is that no one, it's not overseen by any one single body, mm -hmm. that there are all these moving parts and you need to coordinate cruise ships, airlines, hotels, local tourism boards. Residents. They, they know, all, yeah, residents, the Airbnb, because Airbnb suddenly turns everyone into a hotel. So it's very hard to regulate this once the genie's out of the bottle, and Venice is a very good example, because there are so many competing, non-cooperating parts and no one to corral them. And there are competing 
interests in all of these as well. What's good for one group of people is not good for another group of people. But let me pause for one second. Can we talk about what some of these tensions are? What are some of the points of friction? I mean, I understand from the traveler's perspective, yes, long lines outside of Sagrada Familia are a drag. But that isn't necessarily in and of itself a problem for Barcelona, right? That's a problem for people standing in line. I mean, How does this I, become a problem for Barcelona? What is the problem for Barcelona? Well, I think a part of it's skyrocketing rents, right? People, residents can't afford to live in certain neighborhoods anymore because... Tease that out. Yeah, what because, is the chain of events I mean, the reason you have, like, regulations happening in all these cities, especially in Europe, around, like, Airbnb is for that very reason. is because you have people coming in, buying an apartment, renting it on Airbnb year-round... And the more people to do that, the higher the rents go up, and residents who used to live in these neighborhoods can't live there anymore. And there, yeah, Airbnb, maybe you don't have to pay the same nightly tax as you do in hotels that right. have these regulations. Um, another issue with Barcelona specifically is the fact that it's the Mediterranean's biggest port. So a lot of cruise passengers come, and they're not staying overnight, right? So they're talking about introducing a day trip tax, because a lot of people come. There's intense foot traffic around these most popular sites and in the historic downtown core. And that puts a stress on a lot of people that live there or formerly lived there. And a lot of those shops, the reason that people initially come to Barcelona to see that original way of life are being pushed out for tourist shops. But, but I would say, I think cruises are the, you know, the elephant in the, on the ocean that, <laughs> that we have to deal with because cruises are an amazing way to see a lot of places quickly. And when cruises go into a new port, I was in the Scilly Isles early, earlier this year, which is a, a British group of islands just off the tip of Cornwall, and they are not yet a cruise port, but they are being solicited to become a cruise port with very seductive economic impact studies saying, mm. if the cruise comes in, it will make £100 a day for all the local residents. Who does that? Is it the cruise lines that do that? Yep, the cruise lines commission those okay. because they want to show that they're giving back. Yeah. Without exception, whenever I've talked to destination people, those numbers are always hopeful mm -hmm. if we want to be polite. Yeah. If you were in Reykjavik, if I were going to Reykjavik, one of the things I would tell people is check the cruise schedule because you don't want to be there when there are too many ships in town. Yeah. Because it disgorges people who are perfectly nice and it's not the cruise ship passengers for they want to see the place but it disgorges people in a very unbalanced way and cruises and the boom in cruises are a co like a corollary to this this over tourism that is it's not unfair to really look at them i don't think i mean and the, i mean we, we're just not even talking about like the environmental impact either right and the environmental stress that these places are of under the people of, 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 the, of this of the influx visitors. of tourists right and i mean i think that has been a major concern for the azores and you're talking about interests and i think that's where actually the interests align because the appeal of the azores it's not beaches it's not sitting on a beach and having a cocktail it's not necessarily like historical either while there are like kind of cute colonial lira towns it's not why you go it's it is like it's natural wealth is the reason you go and so by preserving it by making you know Certain percentages of land has to be protected. There's like crazy uh, land management laws now in the Azores. So they, like, even if a big resort did want to move in, they couldn't build. Part of it is aligning it is because if that stuff's ruined, the traction's gone. The reason to come is gone. Right. And I think the tensions that come up include, at the same time, that these are all things that residents love too about where they live. And you know, when I was talking to people, when I was reporting this Azores story, that's what they kept coming back to is they're like, I'm Azorian. I go to the hot springs on the weekend. Like I'll go on a hike with my family on on a Saturday. You know, it's and we don't want those things to be ruined for us either. So it's kind of this three-way alignment of interests. 
around natural beauty. I would also say that like that human erosion factor is exactly what Machu Picchu is facing mm-hmm. and has been facing for a while in that it was a city that archaeologists say housed like 750 people and now at this point five Am I the only one surprised by that? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it was in the story that Tyler that Tyler Moss wrote, wrote yeah. and and that like blew my mind because 5000 people visit every day and that's the regulated number. Right. Like that number is the amount of people that Machu Picchu has decided and cut down on to make sure that you know people aren't ruining the exact thing that they are going to see which is double what UNESCO recommends exactly and oh. that number yeah it's supposed to be 2500 and and what they've done is they've taken two sections of people so people go in the morning people go in the afternoon it's now 2500 people like per session which again like they've taken ruins that sure in the good old days you could like literally climb all over Machu Picchu and now you have to follow like very strict paths and you have to be with a guide right like (laughs) sure like yes I would love to recreate that like a very nice picture of me just propped up on the ruins but like that's not at this day and age an option for a lot of us if we want to keep seeing them and so I think that you know they're doing a lot more than just splitting up timing but I think that that like human factor, even if you're in Barcelona and you're looking at the Sagrada Familia, like those floors are not necessarily built for thousands and thousands of people in line to walk over them every day. Right. I want to get into, you know, some case studies on this in a second. But first, I wanted to talk for a minute about some of the factors that go into why this has suddenly because, yes, it's been building up for years, but things have changed in travel right in the last five to 10 years that have contributed to this. They're not necessarily negative things in and of themselves, but I think it would be helpful just to try and get some of those things out on the table. What are some of those factors that have changed? So we talked about cruises. Another thing that people point to um, is airlines, right? These transatlantic fare wars bringing more people. um, It's cheaper than ever to travel and fly. Another thing, Mary, you can talk about is the Airbnb effect, right? Which we mentioned earlier, the fact that these unregulated, by and large, housing listings have flooded the market and changed the landscape of what it's like to stay in a place. Well, I think that they've, one, made it more accessible in the same way that those transatlantic airlines have in that you can stay for a long period of time with your large family in a place that isn't going to cost you as much as five hotel rooms or two hotel rooms or whatever it is. And then I think it really does, like, in the best and worst way, it opens up all of these homes that you never would have had access to before when before a hotel or number of hotels could be like, sorry, we are overbooked. And, like, that's nothing against you, the traveler. It just is what it is. If you, do you want to say something? I was going to say other reasons, you know, why I think it's happening now. I mean, another, I think a big part of it is you have people all over the world entering the travel market as tourists for the first time. You've got a country of a billion people in China that suddenly you have an emerging Ten, middle class. Ten million people a year get a passport? Is it something like that? But Maybe it's even so more the, than that. So the statistic that Elizabeth told me was it's only 7% of the Chinese population has a passport which is still hundreds of thousands of, of people. No, it's 97 no, million. Oh, yes. sorry. Oh, right. so sorry. Yeah. 97 so million. Between 7 and 9% of like Chinese people have passports, right? Because by the time we're finished telling this story. Um, yes, yeah. right. <laughs> like That's just the reality of it, which is crazy. Um, and Meredith and Mark, I know you've both talked about and written about this, the fact that this has changed the landscape because in reality... Chinese people weren't really traveling mm-hmm. before right. because of government restrictions, right? 
Right. So now all of these new travelers who are just getting to travel for the first time are hitting all of those cities. All those classic spots. All those classic spots yeah. like Barcelona and like Venice and these Bali, cities. Bali, it's like insane. That we, we Bali now. are continually excited about, but are new to a lot of them, which is also incredible that it's, you know, spreading this level of travel to everyone else. But um, it's funny when I was talking to Elizabeth, she was saying, you know, everyone needs to take the romance out of travel for a second when we talk about over tourism, because I think people can get so wrapped up in that, like, we want everyone to travel and everyone should get to experience all these beautiful things. And I, I think that everyone can agree that that's still true. But like, there's a small dose of reality that has to come with that conversation of like, this is what we can actually do for you. So I think, which is a very unpopular observation, but I would put Instagram. In I was going to say. I was just going to say that. Thank you. I'm glad, uh, we didn't this, rehearse this. Was like not, that was, that no, was a genuine That's not controversial at all. I think it's the other side of this whole thing. So this, when we think of Meredith's done some stories about doing it for the gram, and I did a CBS This Morning segment, which you can find online, about the travel and in Instagram. And there I talk about there's a place in Norway which 10 years ago had 400 visitors a year because you can sit on a rock and it looks like you are in this idyllic, isolated location. And there are now something like 15 thousand visitors in a less than 10 year span so you go from 400 tourists to 15,000 because everyone wants that shot and now there is a line by that rock to go up and take your picture and I think what Instagram does is it directs everyone to the same kind of places because of how we use it yeah. and I, I, I and I don't I don't think it's Instagram's fault but I think we need to adjust how we use it so that it, it, we're not all funneled the same way these two things are related, but they're different sides of the spectrum of travel, where you have people entering the travel market who haven't been able to travel before, and now they can, and so they're going to hit all the classics. And at the same time, there's a level of sophistication that's saturating, that's hitting the more saturated parts of the travel market, where people want to go more and more to places that are off the beaten path, and that push it. And you Instagram know what's weird helps is like, that. It's like maybe I'm just different, but like, <laughs> don't. Don't you? You are definitely yeah. different. <laughs> like, wait, don't you want to go? Are we, get done, the, are we done? No, then? don't like, you? <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> See you never, travelogue. Um, don't you want to get the photo of the place that not everyone else has? Yes, but I, it still manifests itself on Instagram, and I still think that's the other side of the coin, which is that you've got people who have been traveling for a while or who are part of those more sophisticated markets. They are trying to go to places that are off the beaten path, but then those places that are off the beaten path are not – they don't have the infrastructure to support, like, larger levels of tourism. It's the and example And then they mark. become the path and then they become everyone the path. gets mm. – Yeah, because, because there's no secrets about this anymore, right? Like, people don't go to these places, and we were talking about this before of where there are advocates of actually – like, don't geotag your photos. Right. right. There's a Women Who Travel episode that we recorded a couple months ago um, with this woman who is a sailor and surfer. And she specifically, in the books that she's written and in her Instagrams, doesn't mention the exact location because she says, one, it takes away that joy of discovery for you. And two, she would never want to do that to the people who live there to specifically direct all of the people in her audience, which is thousands of people to go to one specific place just because she's been there. And I think that it's it's interesting. Liz Carlson, who has an Instagram called Young Adventurous, she talks about how there are certain paths in New Zealand that she'll go and do you know trail cleanup on because they're so overrun by visitors. 
you know, people just leave litter everywhere. But then she'll go on a, you know, quieter path around the corner and there won't be anyone there because people have been just taking a right all at the same turn. And the same with Machu Picchu. Like there are other ruins, similar ruins nearby that are like equally as beautiful and idyllic. But because Machu Picchu gets all of the attention, like those have you know, fewer people. There's one, granted, I will say, it is a four-day hike from Cusco. Um, so so you're, you have some to, people out already. Right? You have to work for it. But two years ago, it had six visitors the entire year. <laughs> like, wow. if you just put a few, and I'm not, like, I know that it's like, it is, yeah, six, S-I-X. If you, it like creates this kind of vicious cycle for me to tell you guys, like, you should go to this other place that doesn't get that many people. But I feel like there's some positive outcome to, kind of like spreading the wealth spreading the wealth and that's a, I, yeah. mean, I know you wanted to get into case studies later but that's one of the things that azores is doing is because most people go to sao miguel the main the bit large you know kind of the main island but they've been you know azores getaways which is this travel agency that does these package deals for to the azores has been working with azores airlines and the government and hotels to like put out these like insane deals for off season first of all to like Terceira, to like another island in the Azores, mm-hmm. or to, you know, island hop, everything but Sao Miguel. And it's a concerted effort to be like, let's spread the wealth. Let's give See, Terceira the I love, I, love, I love the point yeah. you make about this because I was talking to a travel expert about this topic and he said, I think the one of the big problems is that it's, I don't call it over-tourism, I call it unbalanced tourism. Right. It's concentrated And, tourism, right? you know, what I think about, and I think about, and I'd love to hear this from listeners, people who have been in this position, I ha- actually haven't been to Machu Picchu, and I now feel like I shouldn't, or I... I shouldn't because it, it's bad to do it, or I shouldn't because I won't enjoy it. And so I've missed that boat. I've, I've but same I, with Iceland for me. I've been to Greenland before I've been to Iceland. But I don't think, I think that's a, an important footnote in this conversation. Most people, if not all the people that we talked to said, the answer is not, yes, go somewhere else. That's nice. But also these places need to fix the problem and you shouldn't mm-hmm. feel bad about going to these places. There are responsible ways that you can do that, right? Like when I was talking to the tourism minister from Iceland, she said, yes, okay, we're mentioned in this conversation about over-tourism and you still should go to Reykjavik. You should do the Golden Circle. But it's about distributing the people that come and easing some of those pressure points because Iceland is not overrun. It's such a simpler story to say, yes, all of Iceland is struggling from over-tourism, but it's actually not. It's about balancing it better, as but Mark's w- saying. I mm-hmm. want to come back to, I want to come back to a point that Mark was making, which is that it seems to me that there is often a higher tolerance than I would have expected, and than I sometimes have, for the bad experience in the place that you feel like you have to go to. And I would expect that to be more of a disincentive than it seems to be. It seems like there is sort of almost infinite tolerance for standing in the line behind the thousands of people to get the Instagram shot or whatever shot you're supposed to get. Except I would say that, you know, to pimp my story out from the package, you know, Venice, I, the, the, the CEO of, of Generator, the sort of postal chain said to me, we're really seeing bookings, a downturn in bookings. And he said, when, when I talk to the GM of our property in Venice, he says to me, it's because people are uncomfortable. They're not sure if they should be there. When they come, they say, will we be treated badly? Is it wrong? 
Venice's over-tourism problem, and again, Venice is Venice is my least favourite victim in this scenario because Venice builds all the cruise ships and then bitches about the fact they visit. So they all build those, them in Genova. Well, I mean, well, but you know, no, but the you know the Veneto is the richest part of Italy. Yeah. So cry me a river yeah. while you get so rich, yeah. and then the cruise ships have the temerity to visit you. Yeah. <laughs> There's a nimbyism to that, but. It, it, it was quite heartbreaking to realize that maybe some of these over-tourism destinations are succeeding too well in discouraging people because you're entitled to visit Venice if you've never been before. Yeah. That, that's. I also would say that one of the places that is doing it well in a way that I didn't expect is the entire country of France, which is that they have set up their rail system and their bus system and even the way they distribute art from the Louvre to other places and the festival system and everything that they've done to spread their French culture outside of Paris encourages people to drop in, go to Paris and then easily visit Bordeaux yeah, and all true. and Cannes and all of those places yeah. to kind of spread that out while, you know, I think in Italy, it's like you go to a hub and then you go to a smaller hub and like you, the trains are great and it's nothing against well, that, but it's great. They're I mean, fine. it's better than, than, the, it's better than the U.S. Places. It's better than the U.S., but I don't think they make it as, it's not as it's easy not as, as France. Easy. No, and, and I would agree. And I, and also I think, think it's think harder in Spain too. Like they also to, only connect central parts, yeah. whereas the, you know, train system in France would connect you to much smaller towns than I think. The and that's part, of, that's part of it, what I was saying about timing too, right? It's like, this is a place trying to, like, if you're going to do it to a level that works, I think you have to do it well in advance, right? And I think that's, you see a lot of the times the infrastructure develop really rapidly around that point of interest that everyone is going to. And then you're like, well, shit, I'm not going to go to that place if it's a 12-hour drive through dirt roads, you know? Right. And, and France, then what's the incentive to actually build that road to make it easier to get there? And it's so it's kind of, you need to take that risk as the municipality, as the government or whatever to be like, okay, maybe one day this can be the next stop on this journey instead of everybody going to this one corner of Bali. And you I, know? I think it's an intentional thing where it's like France created a ministry of culture and they've decided, you know, even if you have this tiny little art museum in this tiny little town, they're going to get one painting from the Louvre and we'll switch it out every mm. once in a while. But people will go there to see that painting and it spreads the wealth of what they have to offer so that it automatically spreads the people right. to see that wealth because you can't go to Paris and get all of France. Right. But some of that is cultural too, right? Because you're never going to get Italians to do that, right? Like you can't, you can't get. And I don't mean to. I just mean like, like he can say that he is married to an Italian. <laughs> yeah, so that I, isn't no, just. Disclaimer. I don't mean that. I'm not Wasn't even some saying, sweeping it's, generalization. It's, no, and and I, and I don't mean. And I would say the same thing about Spain, right? Like yeah. like Spain is fragmented. There's a lot of competition and disagreement about you know sort of federalist approaches to things in these countries. And I think each of them are, are, are distinct countries. France does a better job at sort of devising a blanket solution to things. But I don't mean that as a value judgment. I just mean that, you know, the sort of like ability to get, you know, Rome and Florence and Venice and Piemonte and Milano and like all of those to agree on some kind of nationalized version of all this is harder than it, you know, you'd think it would be. And I think getting Catalonia and other parts, of, you know, it's just, it's not as easy. But I also, let's, I just want to reiterate, I think it's really complicated 
to make people feel guilty who haven't yet been to Paris for just wanting to go to Paris. Yeah. Yes, we want to try and encourage that. But you know, you're entitled to want to visit Paris because you've never been there. It's on your bucket list. You can take one big trip and you just want it to be Paris. And I think there's a real, there's a really complicated sort of, the travel industry doesn't quite know, and the, the Venice story really reminded me of this, how to kind of scold people nicely and say, what we want you to do is really love this. So yeah. can we give you some advice on how to to have the Paris experience you're dreaming of. Like, actually, August is really quiet in Paris, but July isn't. So maybe you should come in August. I think there's. A, I think it, we should be much better at saying to people, we want you to love Paris. If you do this, you may not love it as much, but if you do that, you're both contributing to the local economy and you'll get those pictures and experience you want. And I think you're starting to see that, right? We talked about Barcelona and in my conversation with their tourism point person from the city council, he was saying, you know, the advice I would give to people is like, of course we still want people to visit. Like we're an open city, we'll tolerate you. We want you to come, but just remember that your holiday is our everyday, right? And so what you were what saying- a tagline. Yeah. <laughs> um, and remember that people live here. And again, like I said, the things that you're coming to Barcelona for, like those are the things we hold sacred and want to keep intact. And so it's about tying it to experiences. Come to Barcelona and do this in the city. I, Don't I just think, go I think that's a nice places. one because it also taps into something that is a, a tension in all of this, which is this notion of you know wanting to live like a local when you visit. And what gets lost in all of that is the more that you're kind of there you're disrupting local life, right? Like you're take, you, you want to eat at the neighborhood restaurant, but then other people, the people who actually live there in the neighborhood can't get a table at that restaurant anymore. And we can see that happening right here in New York. And I think it seems to me, and you guys may know otherwise, and we can, again, we can go to the case studies to examine this, but it seems to me like cities have a hard time managing it themselves, but travelers can manage this for themselves. Like you can have a version of Barcelona that is an excellent version of Barcelona that doesn't necessarily require you to go to Las Ramblas. Yes, you want to go to the market, but you can also go lots of other places. I would, you know, I just think like you can have a version, just like we know that you can have a version of New York City that doesn't take you anywhere near those giant crowds. I would also say that like the responsibility there is that if you're trying to plan that trip and you can't figure it out, like hire a responsible travel specialist who's actually going to be able to have the education and understanding of the city to be able to direct you to those things um, where like you will get the true Spanish or French or Azorian experience by going with Azores Getaways like without it disrupting your trip or the local experience. Like I think there's a way to do all of that and only have it on the responsibility of the traveler. At what point do you feel like levels of tourism, I don't even want to call it over-tourism, let me be neutral about it, levels of tourism, types of tourism, actually change the character of a place? The example that prompts this for me is one that I'm familiar with, which is the Cinque Terre, right? Which I would say, if you go to the Cinque Terre almost any time, but certainly at certain times of year, and, and you know, again, sorry, I have insider knowledge on this because my wife has family that live close to that, but not in that. So we go there frequently. There are towns there. Some of those towns, one or two of those towns, are actually, the character of the town is hard to actually get at because there are so many people, you know, surfing like little 
college kids running around, that that is the, what is the dominant culture in that town at that point in time. So the buildings, the architecture is all the original architecture, but the actual personality of the place is subsumed. So when I went to Santorini, I was on a cruise. I was on a small Windstar cruise, 200 people. And as we um, approached the island in August, there were five gigantic cruise ships already moored there. And when we tendered in, it was like Black Friday at Target. It was <laughs> fighting for space. It was, and you've heard about you know these these donkeys you know being weight limited. It wasn't that. It was just these poor donkeys were overworked because there were so many people. And I remember walking around Oya and and feeling that I couldn't even pause to take a photograph because the flow of the traffic, it was the subway at, oh, at peak time. Horrible. And it was miserable. Yeah. And I, But it was miserable for me, but I also think the locals, unless you're working in tourism and creaming some money off and good for you, that must be terrible for them too. And I remember what we did, having been very excited to go to Santorini, end up being the sort of blight on the trip. And about two hours in, we thought, you know what, there's nothing sightseeing that's pleasant about this. We're just going to have a really long lunch. And we're going to walk the opposite direction from the way everyone is walking. And we're just going to sit in a restaurant that doesn't really have that many people in it. Mm -hmm. And that was very nice. Did I see Santorini? No. Do I care? Not really. <laughs> but I did that exact same thing in Cinque Terre because I was by myself. I had brought a book. I was walking around very overwhelmed by how many people that there were, especially because I was on my own. And I found a restaurant at the top of the hill where there was no one. And I sat there for four hours watching tourists cram onto these ferries, be very mad that they were not being able to fit on, then yell at people, and then like the ferry would go, and the next one would come, and then a bunch of people would pile off and then pile back on. And... Like, I think the only Italian people that I ran into were the people who worked at the restaurant, yeah. which for me was like a blessing because I could just sit up at the restaurant with the Italians and like look down over all of these people while I read <laughs> Kitchen Confidential. But I think that it definitely changed my experience of the place. Like, that's exactly what it was. It ended up just being like, oh, this is a place for me to read my book. Not like I'm going to actually experience this Italian way of life in any way. And back to an earlier point that you were making. Here's something that's interesting about both Santorini and the Cinque Terre to me, which is that it's true that it, it's very difficult to see Ia, right? Like uh, on Santorini, Fira is a little bit better, not sort of like categorically different. But when you get to the other side of the island, it's like farmland. There are parts of that island you don't get the spectacular views, but there are parts of that island that you can go to that, that will get you away from that. And similarly in the Cinque Terre, if you go, and again, I'm not advocating this, please don't do this, <laughs> but there are towns, if you keep going further, let's see, it would be further west, right? On in, toward the Levante and like, and you're, you're headed toward France, basically, right? And you don't even have to go very far. And that's a place where the Italian train system is actually really great. It's slow, but it's really good. And you can move between those little towns. And there are many, many little towns that are slightly less picturesque, but there are they don't have tourists. And if they do have, if well, they, they do have visitors. until you just <laughs> well, I'm not told them all any about of them. it. I'm not naming any you of them. You gave them pretty precise directions. There though. is actually... <laughs> 23 degrees. <laughs> Reco is on that train line, and Reco has a very original version of focaccia that you can't get any... Well, you can get it other places, but it sort of originated there. But, like, what has always surprised me is, you know, the Cinque Terre have been overrun like this for 20 years. And 
those towns don't get full. It's like it, 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 it's for some reason people don't make the connection and they don't explore enough to sort of not that I'm not that I want record to turn into, you know, whatever. But but the fact that the experience is corrupted, you know, for the visitor in Manarola or whatever. And just down the road, there's a town that's 70 percent as beautiful and has better food and has no tourists. But I don't know that that's what everyone travels for. I mean, I agree with you. We all agree at this table. But a lot of people, it seems like, are going for a certain thing, whether that be to just stay where they're comfortable or take the photo that they want or walk around the port. Um, to some people, there's nothing wrong with that. And if that's your level of comfort, then I, I can't criticize that. But Can I disapprove of them? <laughs> <laughs> From on high, yes. Come on, high. This chair's no. not that tall. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have agree. a normal height I chair. I agree with you, but I, I think we're operating, or I can operate from the the standpoint sometimes that everyone feels the same way. Yeah, about I mean, it's a bunch of travel do, writers right? who like obviously want to be on the cutting edge of you know destination. Like, no, I just don't lie. want a bunch of American college kids in my picture of the Italian town. <laughs> I mean, I went to. Cinque Terre to take freaking photos. Like I went to take photos on my way to Florence. I was and like, how'd meeting. that work out? It was great because from my hill, the people are so small. <laughs> it didn't make Can't a tell if there's <laughs> no, but this is this is from my point. Santa I think Cruz it, or... you, what I think it. I think the and I know what you're trying to say, Brad. Is there are lovely experiences to be had right there that you might overlook. But again, if it's your bucket list trip to Cinque Terre, you're entitled to want to just go to Cinque Terre. What I would always say, again, unbalanced tourism. And I've spoken on this podcast many times about going to Venice for my birthday which is in February, early February, if anyone wants to send me any greetings, gifts, anything you like. What day, um, what time? February you know, 5th, address, same please? day as Bobby Brown and Ronald Reagan, I believe. Um, the, the Not same year. But, you know, for my birthday, I would go to Venice because it's the winter and it's wet and cold and kind of magical because it's so romantic in a very different way. So I would always say to people, you can go anywhere that's over-touristed, just check your timings. Like you check the, the cruise schedules in Reykjavik, try and avoid when it's a busy cruise week. You can still go. You just have to be a little bit more strategic. Is that fair? I mean, And I also think you have to be more flexible. If, I mean, there was a flight deal today to Inverness in March through May, which is like not the... There's an airport in Inverness? <laughs> <laughs> There's not... It's not the sunniest time to go to Scotland, like admittedly, like it is going to be rainy and chilly, but like there are things indoors to do there. Like you have to just be. Oh like, no! You. I was in. I was in Inverness in April, which isn't that far away. It was amazing. But that's like, you don't need to stay I just. Indoors. I think you get the vibe. You know the right. kind of gloomy. But I think it goes back to that like tinted in the black aisle. You know, if you have this like perfect picture of every day of your vacation being sunny and beautiful and the perfect temperature, like you're only gonna travel in July or June, and like that's not productive for anyone and also limits you to very hot vacations. Sorry. I'm the British person here, so I just have to stand <laughs> up for Scotland and say, you're absolutely right. I, Scotland's weather is not, other than the Western Isles, which have a warmer climate system, you're absolutely right. But Scotland's weather isn't that bad. And because when the weather is, is a little rough, the culture is configured for it. Remember, Scottish people live with it year round, so a lot of stuff is indoors. So actually, the places that have rougher weather are much more future-proofed against you visiting off-season because they live there, and so the best thing about Scotland is going into the whiskey distilleries. But anyway, Seb, I didn't mean to no, drop, but I am the British person here, so I feel like I have to... We're all just like, oh, what does show he know it, about Show us it's, your card. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, I think it all goes to actually the point 
Katie over here was making. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Getting way informal in <laughs> yeah. his last appearance. Yeah. Kind of just like do you, right? Mm. You know, if, if Brad, if you're like, you've been there, done that in Chiquitera, you don't want to hang out with the college kids on study abroad, like, then go to those other towns. Surf abroad. <laughs> Surf abroad. <laughs> then... But if you do want to do it, then do that. If you are down with Venice when it's gray and rainy, like you do that. So like know your options and and do you right? Yeah. I, I mean, okay. I, yeah. Okay. But again, <laughs> sorry. But like like yeah. No. Your first no. trip to Bali, like yeah, go to Ubud. You're gonna go to Ubud. I okay. Yes, that's but true. But I've been to Bali seven hundred times, and like I'm gonna go to like a village an hour away from Ubud where there isn't a single other tourist. Yes. You know? And and fine. But what I would say is I would say two things. One, if you are Mr. or Ms., you know, I want to live like a local and I want to, you know, then 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 immersing yourself in a you bunch of like in a bunch of like Santa Cruz refugees in the middle of the Cinque Terre. <laughs> there is such a specific problem yeah. though, Brad. I'm picturing this oh, day. This day is coming into focus. Stupid. Yeah. Anyway, my point is just my point is just like you ain't doing it. So if you think that's what living like a local is, Ital- you know, the, except for the people that live there, like the family that I have there, they're like, we are not going into Vernazza this weekend. But like, some people don't. Like, people some people are, do some that. people don't want to do this. Some people are flying halfway around the world the to Bali thing, to stay at a resort for a I week. I wasn't done. The <laughs> other thing I was going to say is, and I and I'll just like I'll I'll use you know New York City as the context for this, and I know we'll, we'll also get dinged for that on iTunes. <laughs> but I will say that uh, <laughs> yes, finger wag. Um, I do think that there is a way to be a conscientious traveler to be aware of the fact that you are part of a large group of people that are having an impact on this particular location. And the example I would use is the Brooklyn Bridge, right? I I could never argue with anybody wanting to see and walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. I love the Brooklyn Bridge. I want to walk across it. It is literally like, you know, in my in my I live in Brooklyn, so it's part of my world, right? And I and I and I can do this I can walk to work across the Brooklyn Bridge if I really wanted to. The thing is what you see happening there is if people would be conscientious about their use of space and about the actual regulations that exist on the Brooklyn Bridge, because the Brooklyn Bridge has a lane for bikes, it has a lane for passengers. But it's passengers. so much fun to watch the, <laughs> the cyclists. <laughs> You're in the bike it. lane. Bike. <laughs> it is, except when the bi- when the cyclist is my ten year old son, oh, you know, and hey. like and 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 and, 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 and I just think and I think like you get people running across and having no conscientiousness of this, and they're running across and they're standing in the middle of everything, taking photos so that people can't walk around. And I do think there's a level of courtesy. But Just I think courtesy. you're making. But Brad, I think you're making a point, which is about when you're a traveler, you need to be respectful. Yeah. And but like more respectful than you are at home. Yeah, but you need to be. But but you're still entitled to want to go to Ubud and yeah. stay in a resort. But yes. you want to be respectful when you do. I would be very interested from listeners if there is anyone, especially in America, if there are other destinations that have felt a sort of over tourism moment, mm-hmm. because I think New York is often cited, San Francisco is often cited because those are very compact. And then there are some national parks too, right? Yes. So I'm the, curious. Yeah. I'd I'd love to hear from listeners, especially domestic, I mean, international too, but domestic who've experienced a real change in when they as locals go to enjoy their life and how they noticed it. Because I, I think the Brooklyn Bridge is a great example. Yeah. I will just say that I feel like for tourists getting shouted at by bikers on the Brooklyn Bridge is like prime curmudgeon New Yorker That's and like really it's part of experience. the tourist experience. <laughs> so just, now you're just, just saying, a thought. You're encouraging people to stand in the stupid bike lane and take their selfies. You want the experience of, like, of a guy in a fixie yelling at you. <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, what is the other side of Venice's over-tourism problem? Venice is the canary in the coal mine for all of these destinations. It is the warning, Klieg, if you don't handle this right. Venice has always struggled with tourism because the Venetians are not known to be warm. I've been a tour guide in Venice. I've talked about this before. They're not the easiest people to work with. And also Venice has always thought, eh, if I treat this guest badly at a hotel, someone else will book the room next year. I don't really care. But Venice has scolded tourists so much that over-tourism, which is genuinely a problem, genuinely a problem in a city like that, has become almost a way that local politicians rally their constituents behind them. Notwithstanding that almost everyone who now lives in the center of Venice benefits or profits from or works in tourism. So there's this very kind of complicated way that the local politicians go, we're going to ban people. And all the residents who are left go, yeah. And meanwhile, they go to their jobs at the hotels. It's insane. That is such a... <laughs> I'm sorry. But then there's also people who don't live there anymore because they can't, right? Sure, absolutely. But I'm, but I'm saying what, what I'm... I don't feel for Venice. I think Venice... As I said earlier, you know, Venice builds the the Veneto builds the cruise ships that they then bitch about parking in their backyard to do exactly what they were built to do. And I think Venice, if I were a tourism bureau chief, I would look at Venice and do the opposite of what mm-hmm. Venice has done. And you will even doing a little bit of the opposite, you'll do great. Yeah, they've really overcorrected, right? I mean, the talking about the things you mentioned in your story about the fines you can get fined for sitting for snacking in public places things oh, that you're just like yes second guessing your normal behavior as you're walking along right yeah yeah what are the right ways to do this what are the success stories we talked about machu picchu earlier right which has sort of heeded the advice of unesco and really made it about management halfway halfway but i right? think that halfway is is glass half full yeah I, mean, I think the Azores have done done it right, at least so far. I think it's early to tell. Like, who knows with, you know, new flights flying there from the U.S. and things like that. But, I mean, they've got three islands that are UNESCO biosphere reserves, which come with all kinds of limitations for development. They've got they, – so they, they did a first round of this that ended in 2015, which was long before tourism really kind of picked up hard here. And they set a limit of 20,000 beds hotel beds across the nine islands. They're only at like 11,000 now. So it was like a worst case, setting the worst case scenario like long before it hit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like there are two different models here. One is heavy regulation and a systemization, and the other is a shifting of the incentive structure, right? Like so mm-hmm. incentivizing a different set of behaviors. Not that those are completely different things, but those are at least two different tool sets, right? I think that the group that's done the regulation the has gone the farthest in terms of regulation is Bhutan because they mm-hmm. only let a certain number of people in. You have to pay a specific fee to enter, and it includes your housing, it includes your food, it includes your tour guide, and it includes basically like a tax that goes towards social issues. So they've improved their literacy with this money. They've improved so much about their own country because they've been able to use this economic structure. Which is, it's tough, right? Because it also means that if you can't afford to pay $250 a day or spend $250 every day that you're traveling, you can't, you can't go, go to Bhutan. Bhutan. But if you but, but can't we'll, amortize a 
$1,000, you can't have an iPhone. I mean, this is sort of... Right. Rwanda is, you know, Rwanda is, as it develops back as a tourism destination, I'm planning a trip to Rwanda in January, and it's been fascinating to realize how expensive the gorilla permit... Botswana's done the same thing And Botswana is the exact yeah. Yeah. Botswana, Botswana is a great template for that, yeah. although obviously the new president of Botswana are doing some very scary things. Mm-hmm. But I think while it seems unfair to price things highly, I don't think... Bhutan is pricing it out of most travelers' pockets. Maybe you'll have to save up a bit longer, but I don't think there's anything wrong with saying to people, wow, this is a really special trip. And yes, I know it's a bit more, and maybe you won't be able to come to Bhutan every year, but you're going to save up for it and you're going to love it. And I also think you go in knowing, I'm not going to have to pay for anything else because it includes everything you're for. Well, the spending Unless you buy alcohol. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that like it encourages you to save and you're going to go in knowing exactly what you're going to spend right. for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I mean $250 if you break down that math like in a European city, right? $250 a day or $200 a day depending on high them. season or low season, meals, transport, hotel, and hotel, right? Yeah. So you're you're about there. I, I mean, I feel like it has to happen one way or the other and this, you know, the, the options seem to be you throw restrictions, you only allow a certain number of people, which also might prevent you from ever getting there, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you're on the waiting list and maybe you don't get in. Or you set up a sort of incentive structure like this. I would argue that's better if only because it then provides additional resources for Bhutan to actually do things that make the experience better, to to Mark's point, once you get there, right? It's going to be great. Uh, and we're going to be able to take care of this thing that you actually want to come and visit. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Maybe you fall down on the other. You fall on, because no, the think, other might be more exciting. egalitarian. Like yeah, you sign I mean, up, I you think get it in. might be. I think it is probably more. But that doesn't mean it's better. Like I don't. I'm, you know, it's like I think it's Bhutan's prerogative to do that, I and mean, Botswana's prerogative too to do that. And it works as a conservation strategy in Botswana at least, and I think it works in Bhutan too. Is it like? Is it super democratic and equitable? Like, no. But if that's what it's going to take, like, because you look at the counter example, right? And that's Nepal, and you've got queues to climb mountains and hiking trails that have completely eroded away and are covered in trash. You I know? feel like that's a disaster. Like, you can't reverse that. Right. You know, you can't rewind that. And it's because it Nepal happens. didn't have anywhere near that kind of infrastructure to handle the influx of tourists when it when people started coming, you know, decades ago. And this is what Elizabeth Becker says, right? She says, at the end of the day, take the emotion out of it and recognize that this is an industry. Like, travel mm-hmm. and tourism is an industry, and these governments have the right to put their citizens first, which is another thing that the minister from Barcelona said to me. It was like, you know, the messaging that gets out there is like, we hate hotels, we don't want any more new hotels, when really the the script should be, we care about preserving the rights of the people that live here, and that's a story that's not told as often. Mm-hmm. And that's what she said has changed since she first wrote the book five years ago, which is that finally, for the first time, the people who live there are being considered in the equation. It's not just about the people who are coming to these cities, it's about the people who live there too, and both people have to be a part of the conversation. Which is weird, right, because you think that would be the first, but it's where the money is, right? And it's, because like, ultimately, if you're visiting, you're the guest, you know, it's up to them how they treat you as the guest. So these forces that are, you know, leading us, that have led us to this point, that have led these destinations to this point, they're not going anywhere, right? Technology is getting better. Access to faraway locations is getting better. There are more direct flights to more 
distant locations or places that were hard to get to than ever before. We know that the industry is talking about this. We know that people are sharing information about this. What do you guys see as you know the next five years happening with this? I think you're going to see a real divergence. I think you're going to see some destin- a couple of destinations completely implode. I think you're going to see a little bit of violence, some real flashpoints where something really bad goes wrong. Where do you think that's going I think now? it'll happen in Venice or Barcelona because those are the two cities in Europe that are most susceptible to it to overtourism and are having the biggest problems. And Barcelona is doing its best, but it's not handling it brilliant, not as badly as Venice, but they're both handling it kind of middlingly. Amsterdam's doing much better. There's a story on the site that I wrote about Amsterdam. They've got much cleverer things. I think there's going to be a, a very unpleasant incident that will demonize tourists or locals or that way. But I also think you're going to see more and more destinations think like the Azores, the ones that are, are really coordinated, and turn to tourists and say, we want you here, but there's a bargain that we need to strike. And that might mean a future where it's actually tourism as a whole becomes more sustainable because then you have a new model to follow. Right now, that model hardly exists, right? Still not washing my own towels in hotels. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, you had to bring it up on my last (laughs) podcast. It's uh, implementing that infrastructure before you have the influx of travelers, right? That's what the Azores have been fortunate to do. Iceland is just catching up to that in other parts of the country that aren't Reykjavik. Um, Obviously, with these cities that we're talking about, it's like they got really popular before many of them realized the scope of the problem. And when you have, when you're in the top three cities to visit in Europe or in the world, it's hard to go back from that and scale back and say, actually, no, no, we're only exactly. going to allow 30,000 people to come to the site or however many millions of tourists. Which is year. why like timing is so huge, right? Because yeah. it's like, then like, you know, whatever's the next spot, the Faroe Islands can be like, oh shit, like we've seen this before. Let's get ready. Let's look at what the Azores did. Let's look at what Bhutan's doing. Like, how can we nip the problem in the bud before it becomes a problem? Yeah, I think there will continue to be more coordinated efforts between these larger cities to more, like, this is such a big conversation now, right? A lot of these places are talking to each other and taking lessons from each other, if you ask them about, um, like, Barcelona is considering banning um, those tourist buses in the city center, which is something that Paris does, right? And so I think the conversation and the regulations will become more in line across places that are similar. As people learn from one another. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tourists get more comfortable with not having buses be in the city center Mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. And I think that as we all kind of get trained both on the city side and the traveler side to be used to that, it's going to lead to a better experience for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks, you guys. Can I put a plug in for the fact that if you are if you are considering going to South by Southwest, we will be talking about this at one of our panels. And if you weren't considering, hopefully this discussion has made you want to come. You will get to see Mark in person. <laughs> On the stage. What it, What is the name of the panel? It's Just... called Don't At Venice. Uh, um, so Venice will yet again be our whipping boy, yeah. but um, but we would love you know we would love people to join us because it will be a continuation of this discussion and we've got some really great people, non-traveler people on our panel. Yeah, dive back in the archives too for tips on Austin itself, which is a great destination that we love. So always good to spend time there. Do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. We are now on Spotify. Thank you. 
Um, and visit us at cntraveler.com where you can find our entire, we call it in the biz, a package. It's basically just a bunch of stories that we wrap up in a pretty bow so you can find them all on Overtourism because it has all of these case studies there and lots more detail than we've been able to get into here. Mara, what's going on on Women Who Travel? Uh, the huge. We're talking about women who travel. <laughs> um, we, that is so nonspecific. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think we need to sell it a bit harder. You, you're the person women who programs travel. it. Tell us what you're programming. Well, right now, the next episode that you will hear next week is all about planning a last-minute trip. We are pros at that here at Traveler at the Scramble. So we're going to be chatting with a bunch of our professional last-minute procrastinators about what it takes for them to actually get it done. Um, we're actually scheduling and programming out the rest of the year for both Travelog and Women Who Travel. So if you have any feels about what you want us to talk about, please tweet at me at oh hey there mayor. And I would also say, if you are a woman or a self-identifying woman who travels, join our Facebook group because we have a bunch of super exciting stuff coming up, more meetups, more special surprises. And it's just a really fun time to be in this group that now has more than 100,000 women in it. So definitely join. We'd love to have you. Connections all over the world. All over. Yeah. They like these incredible women are all meeting up on their own on trips and, you know, living a local life because that they can actually talk to other women who actually live in these places they're visiting. And I think that's super cool to just see on the outside. It's a great point tying back to the episode here, which is that one of the ways that you can you can avoid the downsides of an over-touristed place is by connecting with somebody who's from there and getting that insider perspective because I can promise you that nobody who reached out to me would ever get taken across the Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> at, a, at a moment in which they were likely to get bumped into by selfie takers. So that's a great point. Um, we are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. Please do tweet at us. Send us your feedback. You have been doing that. We really do appreciate it. The tweets are are very helpful. They have opinions, which is great. That's what you should have. I think have. tweets are Twitter people. Is yeah. that is that tweets. a word? Yeah. Okay, yeah. tweets. Yeah. A thing. I, I didn't make that. Everyone was had that. a full one eyebrow up. I did not make that up. <laughs> I am way too uncool to make up. I just thought lingo. it was you misspoke. <laughs> <laughs> thought I thought Tweets, I had Brad, a, a tweeper. <laughs> you can find me on tweeper at. <laughs> and now I am tweeping with sadness. Um, Seb, I just want to say uh, this is completely off the cuff, but like it, it, we we are really going to miss you, not just at Traveler, but on the podcast for sure. You've been a great interlocutor. You're my favorite person to fight with because I love you, but it's I, we don't agree on anything. Yeah. Likewise, it's great. The I want to see you guys on Amazing Race. <laughs> <laughs> the Mark Seb fights are epic and entertaining, so we're really going to miss you. Happy 45th birthday to Lale. <laughs> I wouldn't want to miss it. Right. Very important to get that out there. Uh, review us on iTunes. Uh, we do look at the feedback. We completely ignore the feedback about, about swearing in New York references. I love the feedback. Can I say, I want to call out Malls12, who left a review in March, who called me out and said this was her favorite podcast. Thank you so much. And I, I love, thank you for the five star from Malls. Lily White, uh, 1882. We like the four star. We would love a five. Can we do anything to make you a five? But I also love that you called me out. So thank you. I apologize for not thanking you sooner. The people who love Mark uh, <laughs> section of the podcast. <laughs> That's really everyone. Yeah. Um, Mayor, how can the, the folk get a hold of you? 
Uh, you can suggest podcast ideas and also follow all the things that I do at Oh Hey There Mayor. Mark. I'm on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood with a K and two L's. Catherine. I'm on Twitter at KJ Legrave. Seb. I'm at Seb Modek and will continue to be even after I don't work here. Um, you're so going to be right and you're going to be. You're gonna follow be... me, hit me up, see what I'm up to next. If you have ideas, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm at Brad Rick. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>